do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. What started with refusing a very promising Goldman Sachs promotion to Tokyo led to starting a big region farm in South Africa. Join us in this wide-ranging interview with a Regen Ag pioneer about markets, carbon, nutrient density, cobalt, chemical-based fertilizer, large distribution, aka supermarkets, and so much more. Enjoy. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. Or find the link below. Very warm welcome to, to this interview today with an ex-Goldman Sachs bond der- derivatives traders, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. um, turned region farmer. And there is so much to unpack here and I wanted to, to jump right in. So welcome, Angus, to, to the show. I don't think it's the last time uh, we've connected before. I thought it was way longer ago, but actually I checked my notes and it's, uh, it's less than a year. Yeah. So it feels, uh, it's, it's interesting, but we got connected through Quadia through Joseph, um, right in the middle of the corona pandemic. And then we finally managed to, to jump on a call at yeah. the beginning of 2022. And now we're recording. So I'm very happy to um, get to jump in with this. Yeah, you're with about, you. And you you're about ask me to have a baby so let's when start we spoke the first time. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, and we have two now. So it's like, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been one of a, uh, it's been a hell of a ride, I can say. <laughs> and it's, uh, let's say it makes you appreciate food even more. We've been very focused on that. Um, but it's really interesting. The first thousand days, of course, including the pregnancy, we've done some interviews on that as well. Like simply the quality connection to soil and quality of food is is uh, one where, yeah, I, I, I call it probably the most important story we told in 2022. And I still stand by that, even though we're now three days into the new year. <laughs> but you wanted to ask I me a question, ask you a question uh, before you, we, you, we you, dive you, into, um, into your story. Some amazing questions. But my question to you is, how do you stay positive? And, and what is it that motivates you? Because you've got a big smile on your face. and It's a good question because I'm looking out over a land now where we should be seeing a lot of snow and it's 15 degrees Celsius to even more and it hasn't rained in a while and it should be winter now here. So it's, uh, it's quite depressing and nice at the same time. Um, it's a good question. I think mainly because I'm not on the land, on the land all the time. So I don't see the changes that if I bounce the question to you might be your answer. Like, how do you stay positive? But talk to people like you, like the stewards of the land, the farmers that uh, say and show that this is 
Um, this is possible in a relatively short time frame. I'm not saying two years, I'm not saying two months, um, but changes are like the landscapes we see with our eyes are extremely degraded and we often forget about it. There's a beautiful word for it, which I don't remember, but we get used to a very low, let's say, level of biodiversity, yes. level of biomass, level Correct. of abundance, and somehow adjust to that and say, that's okay, like, let's try to keep this. But then through people like you, I get reminded of what is actually possible. And we're literally, and pun intended, scratching the surface of what is possible in the landscapes we manage as a, as a what is it, hyper keystone species, I think is the, the right term. So it's, it's actually, and of course, you're like a small post stamp in, in a much bigger world of, of ag and, and land because you manage a lot of land, but it's nothing compared to what is being managed around you. But I, I can't imagine farmers like you and you talk to many others that are on the journey ever going back. Like as, as soon as you've seen some of the results and, and some of the impact and the speed of certain things and biodiversity coming back and the quality of food, which for sure we'll talk about the carbon side of things, the water side of things, like I, I can't imagine you go back. And of course we need to create all kinds of instruments and, and support systems and resources to help more farmers start. But I, I, I hope at least that most won't go back. So it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be a tough 10 years. I'm, I'm not uh, I'm, I'm denying that at all, but it's, we don't need any new technology or we don't need any, we need new instruments. We need new investment structures. We need a lot of new things and a lot of new companies, but it's definitely possible. So I think that keeps me hopeful, even though I know maybe 1% of 1% of land is currently managed the way we would like it to yep. see. Um, that's, uh, um, what keeps you, if you are, what keeps you hopeful? So the most hopeful thing that I've experienced has been other regenerative farmers. People who are making an amazing uh, uh, impact on the land. All of them, all of them through the use of introducing the use of animals, all of them through cover cropping, we'll all of them that, through yeah. reducing the use of chemicals. Where, where I see the biggest challenge is, it fast is, enough? is, is the language. Like is that I happen to believe, like Vandana Shiva, I don't know if you know who she is or you've met her. Vandana Shiva said this years and years ago, that human beings are committing species-wide suicide. And we are. You know, your children are a lot younger than mine, but it's very difficult being a parent and realizing that society, mainstream society, I'm talking about mainstream academics, mainstream uh, uh, um, media, mainstream government is hell bent on exterminating the world's population. And that's not, that, that's just a fact. You can look at sperm counts, you can look at cancer rates, you can look at fertility counts. It's not disputable. It's not, it's not, it's not even a people, it's, it's not even a, a theory. It's a fact. It's not even a conspiracy theory. It's a fact. That, so, so couldn't I, I believe that there are going to be a lot of people in the next 10, 20 years who are going to die a lot um, and, and we just need to make sure that we're not in that group of people and we are part of the solution, not part of the problem. And the regenerative movement, I believe needs help in using the right language. You know, people talk regenerative. What do they actually mean by regenerative and, 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 and how does one measure it? Um, you know, for me, the simplest way to measure it is carbon. It's also the one we can agree on the most because once the carbon is fixed, then the water cycle falls into place. Another measure is biodiversity, but that's a very controversial one. You know, what, what is the correct measure of biodiversity? How, do, we, do we know? Can you say 
what that area that you that, what is that window that you're looking out of now that's supposed to be you know snow snow covered can you do you know what that diversity was 400 years ago 500 years ago 600 years ago i mean the area where i live hasn't had you know europe has degraded quicker than africa has um but i, I can't tell you what the biodiversity here was 2 300 years ago i imagine it was like the garden of eden And let's start with the question we always ask. I mean, we're a couple of minutes in and we, we went deep immediately. Um, but let's, let's set a bit of context. What led you to soil? And, and then we're going to unpack all of these. Uh, we, we already mentioned all of the, the, the very interesting hooks you, you already mentioned. I mean, you have a, a great TEDx talk, which I'll put down in the links below in the show notes um, from basically banker to what would have what would the Thai say or the farmer, <laughs> um, which I, I will recommend anybody to, to watch. But just to, to share with anybody that hasn't seen that, what, what led you to farming and soil? And then we're going to unpack, uh, obviously, what you're doing and, and what you're working on, which is extremely exciting. And uh, so what, what made, you, made you become a farmer? So couldn't it, it, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great that's question. A, that's I mean, a very different what world. I, what I didn't do, I mean, I didn't leave Goldman Sachs to come farming. That was not that was not my intention. It, 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 so so it's, there's a push and a pull. There are a lot of factors that are push and pull. I mean, I I didn't have a, a Damascene conversion um, where where the lightning strikes you on the road to Damascus and you turn around 180 degrees and go back. I, I I didn't quite have that. Having said that, from what I used to think and say and believe to where I am now, it is 180 degrees. Um, so it was like a few degrees at the time. It was only yeah. it, was, it was a small change, you know, and 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 you just keep changing, 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 changing. But but basically, what happened is the the first thing is we made the decision to leave Goldman Sachs because we didn't want our children to grow up on the twenty third floor of a building in Tokyo, which is where my promotion opportunity was. I was doing sorry, I was doing equity sales, and and um, the promotion opportunity was to go and do derivative sales. Um, and and sorry, I got so excited that I pulled the microphone out of my ear. Um, uh, but but but, no but what happened is can we, happen on this we, podcast. we quit the, the the stockbroking life with the intention of of coming back to South Africa, not knowing what we were going to do. And then then we decided we're going to build a house, and we met five different architects, and the one was a green architect, and said you're going to build a clay house. And I said, what on earth are you talking about? You know, Goldman Sachs people build Funny concrete and steel yeah. houses. No, 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 no. And he took us down this journey, and that was sort of the start of environmental type thinking. But what made you choose that architect over the other well, three we just, that were for we sure actually, easier? Purely a, a personal a man called Etienne Brewer, lovely, lovely man, and we hit it off with him. I mean, the other architects weren't horrible people, but he's an amazing, special guy. And he guided us down this path. Um, and, and it ended up doing quite a lot of works on biodynamics. My children ended up going to a Waldorf Steiner school, um, for primary school. Um, so I got quite into Rudolf Steiner. Um, and then the big, the, the, the biggest change in that 180 degree shift was reading Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. I couldn't, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's the most insane book about the world's food systems. And when I put that book down, I said to my wife, I want to be like Joel Salatin, 
who's the farmer who features. I know a few people that have taken that book and then yeah, jumped on a on a plane and yeah. two days later sat down with Joe yeah. and, and Brown cool. and went down the rabbit hole. Um, yeah. so, it's been influential. So, <laughs> so Joel, anyway, so we've been paying a lot of school fees. We've learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, hindsight being the exact science, I would have done things a lot differently and realized that the South African market is very different from the U.S. market. So you bought a farm and started and, and or what was, uh, there was already so, land so, connected so, to the house. So there How is land it? connected to the house. So it's a much bigger farm now. So I lease the land. I've put in, the owners have bought into the principle of regenerative agriculture. So I've put in about two thirds of the capital. They put in about a third of the capital. Uh, and we started originally, so, so, so now everything is sold under the Farmer Angus brand. But before that, we sold pasture reared. And so why I'm telling you this brand story is that in regenerative agriculture, and Joel Salatin says it best, 50% of your time is focused on production and 50% is focused on marketing. And I said to you earlier, the regenerative agriculture movement, in my opinion, does a really bad job, or the organic world also, of telling the story, marketing. particularly yeah. around the quality of food. Now, I've got some ideas about how we can get around that. But, but basically, we started selling pasture-reared. And then my wife said, no, no, there's other people who say pasture-reared. You must make it around you. And I didn't want to do it around me because it's not about me. It's about the movement. Anyway, she persisted and she's right. And we've now refined the model even more. We've changed the logo. We now put my picture on the, on the packaging. Um, and all of that personalization has increased sales. Because people want to connect to another human being. There's a storytelling that they're interested in. And, and what do you say? I mean, there's so many t things on back that road. What do you say? Let, let's, let's, sorry. What, what's the size of the farm? Just to give an idea, okay. you're inside so, of it, obviously. So we, just to, to paint yeah, a bit yeah, of a picture of on this audio podcast, let's paint it vi visually. Like, what do we see? What would we see if we look out of the window okay. behind right you? Now, what, what are right we? now, you see bright sunlight and 32 degrees Celsius. Okay. okay, that's what you're going to what see kind of right landscape? now. Um, we farm uh, just outside of Stellenbosch, which is a town about half an hour from Cape Town. Uh, we farm on the Spear wine farm, uh, 650 hectares. But of that 650, there's 150, which is hotel, organic gardens, uh, conferencing, restaurants, all that kind of stuff. Then there's about 120 of irrigated pasture. Uh, and on that, we run 330 pigs, 7,000 hens, um, and 120 cattle. And we rotationally graze our animals. That's the most important thing. We move the pigs once a week. We move the cattle two times every day, and we move the chickens every day. Now, and because the weather is so good, we don't have a barn. We've got no fixed housing. And Kun, for me, that's the biggest crime of agriculture is that animals, apart from glyphosate and artificial fertilizers, the biggest crime of agriculture is keeping animals in cages. So your manure is a huge problem. Your disease pressure is a huge problem. Um, animal welfare. Animal welfare. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all problematic. And, and, and so we move animals daily. That's basically what we do. Um, then there's what we call a Feinbos restoration area. So Feinbos is the original um, – biodiversity, I guess, of this area. 
where we don't graze animals, we've planted thousands of bulbs and, you know, just propagated those areas. And then there's vineyards. It's a wine farm. So I converted the vineyards to organic and they've been eight years organic certified now. Um, Are you grazing the vineyards as well? We do once a year. And and so when you said the market, like I would have done things very differently in hindsight, which is usually the case, but what, what would be the biggest change if you would step back? Biggest change, I'd have made the brand around me right at the beginning and I'd have done just one thing, not all the different exercises, okay? Um, yeah, and, 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 and I would have, I would have, look, at the time, pre-COVID, 65% of our clients were restaurants and hotels. Now it's much less. We are forced to go to big national retail. And, but retail, I don't think we're, we're ready then for a regenerative story. They are now. But the restaurants after COVID, dude, you can't believe they don't care. I mean, couldn't, I've been seeing restaurants, Not at I've all. been visiting no. restaurants since 2009, okay, beginning of 2009 with product. I don't know how many hundreds of chefs I've been to see. I reckon 95 out of 100 don't care. I'm talking about and, here. I don't know about Europe. Yeah, yeah. I'm just talking about here. They don't care about what's behind their food. They just want the cheapest egg they can find. And there was that changed with COVID or there was always there? It's always and, there, but it's because, got even worse after COVID. It's probably gone from – almost all of them have traded down in terms of their ingredients. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. But And you're saying the, the big distribution change they do you care or they, they see do, an opportunity? They see the opportunity. Sell. So I'm, 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 my products are in two big national retailers and they're very supportive and very interested and they, they're starting to get it. I mean, obviously, I'm a tiny little supplier of theirs, but the fact that they, for example, the cured meat, which is charcuterie, we're the only people curing charcuterie without adding nitrites, nitrates, and phosphates. And that's now something that they're interested in. Um, don't think they would have been interested because they see that the, that there is a public, there is a, a group of customers choosing that. Yeah, I think so. And then there's another the national, there's another retailer which is a national retailer that I don't supply. They have now launched a nitrite-free bacon. Very interesting. And is that a risk? Like it needs to be that personal with your face on it, etc. For farmers that either don't want to go on the, the marketing bandwagon or are not good at it, like does it? Does everybody have to build that personal brand around their farm no, no. and their face you, on it? You don't have to build it, but if you are a commodity producer, you are a price taker. If you're a niche producer focused on your own brand, you're a price maker. Price taker or price maker? Which changes everything. Which do you want to be? Yeah. Okay. And how much space is there for all these personal farmer brands? I don't know. It could I mean, quite a bit. That, that yeah. depends on 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 what how, how how interesting the brand is, what they focused on. 
Uh, in South Africa, we I've always said to farmers uh, to try and brand them around themselves or their children rather than the farm. Because unlike Europe, the South African government is desperate to push through a thing called expropriation without compensation, which means that they take your land without paying you for it. Because basically, the only thing our government can do is steal. And, and so you need to be not tied to the land you can't because be tied you might to the be land. farming somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah. And you mentioned carbon. Let's take a step back to that. Why is it such an interesting one? Because it feels like, at least here in Europe and in the US, extremely hyped as well. Soil carbon companies, platforms, marketplaces, you name it, uh, sensors are popping up every three seconds or so. And, and they're... It doesn't seem to be based on, or most of it, on, on very sturdy models or very sturdy research in yep. it. There's interest. And I think I don't think the hype will end this year. But what is your take, a bit from afar in that sense, or and in the, the Southern African market on, on the soil carbon piece? Because you very specifically said that's the most uh, exciting or most relevant piece now to, to focus on in terms of compensation. Uh, Kun, that's a great question. It, it, there is a huge amount of hot air and hype and money being promised and a very competitive environment. Very few people have actually given money to farmers. Very few. In South Africa, we only know of ourselves uh, who've received money. Um, the, the, and who paid you for it? What, we were paid by a bank. We, 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 it's happened three years. We went through this registry called Credible Carbon. Very interesting registry. Um, and was it significant for you? Like perhaps so the first the first two times was nice. The, the third time was over half a million rand. And and Credible Carbon stories half goes to the staff and half to to me. My cattle herdman got a hundred thousand rand. He bought himself a house in Zimbabwe. So so yes, there's a lot of bullshit with carbon. A lot of greenwashing. But money spent properly, carbon can actually be a transformative thing. Ask my guy, he's bought a house in Zimbabwe for himself. So, so it's a basic law of nature. The more carbon you have in your soils, the more nutrients your soils hold, the more water your soils hold, the healthier everything is. The plants growing in there have a higher bricks, they're more nutrient dense. You know, the most fertile soils in the world are the American prairies, which they are still mining with corn and soya today. Which is such a waste, yeah. And, and how do you measure the carbon, like in this process oh, of listen, three years? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's called a Walkley Black uh, a test. Every soil lab in the world does it. You weigh the soil, you burn the soil, and you, burn it. And you weigh yeah. it again. But do you do, like, how many samples and how deep etc like okay, so, now so in our but... case we go 300 millimeters below the ground mm -hmm. and the soil laboratory wants approximately half a kilogram per block so some of my blocks are the biggest block is 16 hectares the smallest block is um 1.2 hectares and and you pick and then you, of course, come back at exactly the same GPS located block. Yes, of course. Or located spots Co the year after Correct. or whatever time frame you choose. Correct. And now you, you meant, I mean, you got paid and now you're working on getting our farmers Correct. paid as well. 
And not just because farmers, the market not, is not like only it's, farmers it's in South Africa. Moment. I'm talking to farmers in, yeah. in, in, um, in Kenya, uh, in Zimbabwe, uh, mostly South Africa. I'm trying to persuade a farmer in America to, to do something with me. Um, and why now? Or why do you decide? Because it seems like you're already busy enough with running the farm. Like <laughs> well, why taking no, on no, no, it's a great question. this so nice extra side project? What happened project? is I've scaled back my beef business. I was doing beef nationally. And, and, and the primary reason why the beef business became marginally or basically almost loss making was because of the electricity. So I don't know if you know what's happened in South Africa. We've gone from being the best electricity provider in the whole world in 2001 to not being able to keep the lights on for six hours a day. And the cost of those have just driven a lot of businesses under almost our beef business. Then fuel has rocketed up. Um, we've waited so long to get our money back. The margins are super, super small. And, and so I pulled my horns back on the beef business and, and, and I'm doing the carbon business, which is, which is just so exciting, traveling around the country, seeing farms. You know, I'm, as I said to you earlier, I'm depressed about the future of humanity, but being able to mix with the regenerative farmers has really helped me mentally and, and spiritually and psychologically. And, you know, all that, it's just positive stuff. Um, plus, plus I think there's going to be a lot more money in it than in the beef market. I don't know if it will go forever, but at least for the next two or three years, maybe four years. And, and here's the next thing about what I have learned about the carbon market is that soil carbon is the gold standard. And I don't mean to use gold standard because they're a, they're a registry, but, 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 but if you are increasing the carbon, in your soils, it's the, the, it's the carbon credits that will earn the most money not forestry or diverting waste. And, you know, there's a lot of income streams for carbon or putting up solar panels. The most reliable one is increasing the carbon in the soil. And it then has the greatest benefit up for drought, for nutrition, for job creation, all of these things. And, and aren't you worried like on the, the science part not being completely like ironed out yet, like there's a lot of discussion of a lot of this carbon increase on the top layer comes from a deeper layer and, and which is good still because it's available for plants. Like how much of this is net coming out of the sky? Or are you saying, look, the next four years, there's cash on the table for farmers to transition and how much exactly is going to be the end result net of everything is, is important, but we'll figure that out over time. No, I couldn't. Or Listen, what are you? Uh, 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 there is going to be a market and the market is increasing. Uh, I'm, I'm not, that's not what I'm worried about. But the fact is, if you measure in the same way every time you measure and the carbon's increased in your soil, the carbon's increased in your soil. But it depends how deep you go. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's what I'm saying. How, you must you always measure, measure yeah. to, the, to the same thing. Some farmers measure 300 millimeters, others 150. You need to measure on the same block to the same depth. And probably multiple depths, no, just multiple, have an idea but, but of how I'll tell, it's... I'll tell you what is might. happening. There's a very interesting company in the US called Chibo Technologies, C-I-B-O. Bruno, Bruno Basso originally? is the brains behind that, okay? So look them up, Kun. Bruno Basso is an incredible man. And, 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 and they, their technology is using geospatial data, and they'll tell mm -hmm. you exactly what's going on in the soil. And they, they are 97% correlated to ground truthing. That's where we're going to go. 
We're going to look at this thing from the sky and t- tell exactly yeah. what's going on. You know, AI, AI has certain benefits, and this will be one of them. It speaks to former tech equity trader. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, 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 no, no, but, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm very worried uh, about AI. And, 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 but I think in, in, in and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm super anti technology, um, mostly, particularly on the effect that it's having on human beings. Um, and, 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 you know, if there's only, the only thing you can do for your children is limit their screen time. It's the best thing you can do for, as a parent. Let me tell you. And, but at the same time, you would like them. But this is a whole different discussion to, to be able to, I mean, mine are way too small, but to be able to, to deal with it or to somehow navigate. Sure. Because it's not they're going to not have can, screens. You can postpone that for as long as possible. They're, ne- they're yeah, never yeah. not going to have screens. But, but, yeah, yeah, but for example, true. if you put them in front of television, television is tell a vision. Someone else is telling you their vision, which is why you freeze. It's the best babysitter ever. Stick a kid in front of a TV. Yeah, no, no. You know, and and uh, but I'm but 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 I'm I mean I'm digressing here. We we're going back to carbon in the soil. We're we're, we're a carbon we're a carbon you. planet. Carbon is the scaffolding of life. The most stable place for carbon to be is in the soil. So if we can reward people for keeping carbon in the soil, all the better for it. And I, are you excited about things like biochar and enhanced rock weathering, like the rock dust movement and things like so that? I don't know about, I don't know about the enhanced dust weathering. What I do know, I, I know a little bit about biochar. I mean, I've, I've built two biochar kilns and experimented making biochar. Which, which means you're, you're a guru. So, so, so listen, there's no question that biochar could be incredible. But biochar, but. no, no, but biochar is not just burning the material and putting it on the land because then you're going to destroy things. So you need to, you need to burn the material with as least energy as possible, and then you need to fortify it or make it bio. So you need to stuff all those tiny little carbon spaces filled with, you know, whether it's urine or manure or bone meal, or, you know, whatever it is, then you create this insane fertilizer so so you know which is super stable like hundreds of thousands of years like the carbon stays correct correct and and south africa i mean i'm sure the whole world has this problem but we've got a very serious problem with what they call invasive species or alien vegetation now all of those things can be turned as a as they can become a resource through biochar yeah. They are destroying the environment at the moment, but they can be turned into biochar and become an, a benefit. Um, so I'm excited about the biochar thing, I have to tell you, but, but, but I've seen lots of nonsense in biochar too. Absolutely. And, and then, so who are, like, why you're, you're excited about the potential of, of the carbon markets? Partly, I'm imagining, because the market is developing. Mm. And so who are you going to be selling to or are you already selling to? Is that the same bank or do you see other, because you're talking to a lot of farmers in, in South Africa sure. now to, so uh, to start where, selling, where, like who, who will be buying? So where I am exactly now on, on, on is we've got two projects that we've um, submitted to the registry. The registry needs to approve them and send out an auditor. So those projects need to be audited and once they've been audited, which we're expecting to happen this month, we can then offer them into the market. 
And listen, I've heard of all sorts of people who are interested in, in these type of carbon credits. I, I, I purposely, though, have not spoken to anyone because I don't have anything to sell. Um, I don't have any projects to promote. So I, we, we'll see. The, this registry is going through a process of becoming part of um, uh, ICROA, which is a Swiss organization, as well as a South Africa, part of the South African government, which will then make it part of the UN, which then means that they can get overseas prices. So, for example, there's guys in Egypt who are Seca. getting yeah. 25 euros a ton. In South Africa, the price is 140 rand a ton, which is which is uh, just which is which is like a, a fifth of 225 euros. And there's farmers in England who are getting 75 pounds a ton, which is more than 10 times yeah, yeah. the South African thing. So if if we can get our South African and, and Kenyan farmers or whatever, farmers paid on a more level playing field. And I think that's where the opportunity is going to come in is, is the playing field is going to level. You, there's no ways that you can have credits in a certain place for 140 Rand and in UK for 75 pounds. It's just not going to happen. That's going to level out. Um, I, 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 I'm not, and listen, I'm not a cynical person. Um, I know there's a lot of bullshit. In, I know there's a lot of hype yeah. in the carbon thing, but where I do take comfort is that carbon in the soil is not going to tell a lie. Now, whether you get whether you increase the carbon in your soil through rotational grazing or cover cropping or biochar or compost or, you know, all of the above, doesn't matter. And how about, like, what, how do you make sure, I mean, permanence is, is an interesting word there that I don't want to use, but how do you make sure that these practices stick? Is that, like, you've seen that in the past? And, and also the same, the, the second question, how do you make sure that the pioneers get paid as well, that have done a lot of work over the last 10 years to, to make sure that they get rewarded and, and not just say, okay, let me get, I've heard farmers say, let me get my my carbon removal tool out of the shed, which is a, which is a plow. And then let's start again. So I can get the benefit of the, the increased carbon and not just the carbon I already stored over the last decades in some cases. Like how do you, how do you approach okay. us to. So Kun, what um, we, we take our guidance from this registry in Cape town called credible carbon. And, and, and they have a very simple, um, uh, you know, a very simple a, a, a agreement that, Every three years, you take your soil tests. And if the carbon has gone down, not increased, you, Mr. Farmer, need to pay in. So, so, so that's the one thing. The second thing is they, they in answer to your permanence question, you, you know, you just trust that that landowner uh, stays the landowner and doesn't change. But as you said earlier, I've not found one regenerative guy who started on the regenerative journey who's gone back. That, that's the, so you have to take a certain degree of faith and trust in humans. And, and then your, your uh, um, other question about how far back, the pioneers. Well, these guys have said they don't want to go back further than three years. This, their, that's their own story. Whereas mm -hmm. the guys in England have said, you go back as far as you've got soil records. Okay. Uh, 
I've got Mick. I mean, I, I, I was paid in 2014 the first time. So yeah. I've, 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 I've yeah. ridden yeah. my wave all the way up. So, so I, don't, I, don't, I don't really have a strong feeling either way. I do think that, that maybe three or maybe five years um, makes it, you know, I don't think you should go back 10 or 15 years. I, I don't know. I mean, I just haven't particularly thought about it. At this stage, we are going through this registry and this registry's rules are three years. But yeah, so one that, of the projects, one of the projects, for example, has, does not take soil tests that regularly. So the, in their case, it's a five-year project because they didn't have any soil data in the middle. Yeah, and I've seen examples of um, ways to use remote sensing, sort of satellite stuff to to go back. Um, of course, using models, but quite, quite ground truth, go back quite far, like 10, 15, 20 years in some cases, and also forward, like looking, okay, what could it be uh, in terms of in terms of the carbon piece, obviously, on the, the first um, so, half of so the So where do you so. think the carbon market's going to go, Kun? I mean... I would say, like, I would agree with you. Let's, let's. There's money on the table now. It seems like there's there there are crazy prices being paid for biochar for certain uh, enhanced rock weathering and soil carbon in general in some places. Um, it's very messy. It's very hyped. Um, it's probably not completely um, boiled, like completely ironed out in terms of clear. And we're gonna see some scandals for sure. But at the same time, any extra money that doesn't have to come through paying more for your food, which is a whole different topic we can we can dive into, but extra money for farmers that want to transition, that are in transition and are applying different practices. I don't I think it's let's take it and let's get going because we don't know how long this is going to take. It might be two years, might be four years, might be five years, um, or might be 10. And, and you can ride the wave and do a whole lot with this extra cash and, and pay for a lot of uh, uh, compost facilities, biochar, changing rotations, etc. So I, I would say... I would be worried if you build your full model only on carbon because it might just collapse at some point, but I don't see that happening over the next couple of years. So I'm thinking let's take the, the cash off the table and, and get transitions going and practices in place on the land on a lot of hectares. And then we'll see um, how we, how we clean up the mess when the whole thing comes down. But that's, that's for another, I don't think that would be the biggest issue when the whole thing comes down in, in general. So I would say let's be practical, pragmatic and, and take the cash that's there. But make sure, I mean, do whatever we can to make sure it is tied to real practices and real change. I mean, we had Rumi on the show that, that does sell carbon credits, um, which is mostly based on reducing a, a significant amount of chemical fertilizer and, a, and a, a bit about soil carbon. So they combined the two, which is very interesting. Full disclosure, we're probably investing a small amount in, into them. In, in their current round, but like combining so, so that, when you I say, Johannes is said that it. is that is that the NPK fertilizer that they're reducing? Yes, so they work with ranchers or we say livestock farmers. That. I think in the UK, that's very powerful. and they do the two. So they they get them on the transition of. Uh, I will put the link below of the, the interview. They get them on the transition of uh, a different. Uh, so it's all livestock farmers in the UK to get them off to off chemical fertilizer and pay them for that transition and sell those reduction credits plus a bit of soil credits. But I think it's like 80-20. So that makes it less like less vulnerable to, to the soil carbon hype. Um, and I think it seems like Johannes, the, the founder, is very aware of this is a hype for a while, but it doesn't mean you cannot build a company on that for, for a while. 
as long as it's not your end goal and sure. stay there. Like you're not going to be a, build a fifty year company. Based so on could, that. I mean, uh, but for now there's real cash great. and farmers make transitions. So Absolutely. let's go. And and the fact is that the U.S. fertilizer industry emits more methane than all other industries in the U.S. combined. So there's so a very there's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple calculation. So yeah. many tons of nitrogen reduced equals so many tons of CO two sequestered, and and that's the carbon credit. And and getting the fossil fuel out, and they can see it from space. Interestingly enough, they can see when when you applied chemical fertilizer fossil-based fertilizer on your fields because the next day is basically the grass explodes. Mm. So you can basically see it when somebody cheated or when somebody yes. didn't follow the protocols that they worked yes. with. So in that case, it's a control. It's not like we're measuring the soil carbon in the soil because we're using satellites. No, we're just checking that the grass didn't explode because you put something on it. And and in many cases, I mean, if you have that weather and that climate, you can dramatically or completely cut out uh, the fertilizer use and, and really start grazing properly. And, and but you might, might need a kicker. You might need the education. You might need a market. You might need uh, some transition capital to to get your grass or your pasture off that, um, which is got, of course going to be shocked if you cut all the the inputs. But that doesn't mean. I mean, so there's ways like that. I see huge opportunities um, because it quickly reduces a, a very very harmful input and and basically gets farmers to change tomorrow and not in ten years. No, strength to their, so that's very strength exciting. to their arm. I mean, I hope they do really well. It's amazing. And, yeah. and and that's one of the things that we are trying to add to our, to explain to these farmers that it's not just about increasing the carbon in the soil. It's about reducing your nitrogen fertilizer. And it's about, in, in the case of South Africa, ch- changing over to solar power. Which, I mean, that it's, it's getting fossil fuels out of ag. That's a big part here and not being vulnerable for, oh, for inputs you but, don't control. But now the fossil, so, so, like we discussed so, with so here's the fossil fuel thing, which is very interesting. I don't know how much time you get to listen to podcasts, but I, I get very rarely get time, but I happen to be in the car for a few days. Um, well, actually just for a day, I went in and out of Cape Town you're, all the time to find, fetch my daughter. And, and I started listening to Joe Rogan interview Siddharth Kara, whose book Cobalt or red cobalt red about the cobalt industries being published. Kun, I can tell you it's the most traumatic thing I've experienced in the last, I don't know how long, to hear about what is happening every single moment in the Congo. 75% of the world's cobalt comes from there. The the your your cell phones have a hundred have 10 grams or something of, of cobalt in them. The EVs have 10 kilograms of cobalt in there. It's total slave labor. It's mm-hmm. it, it, the environmental catastrophe, the human catastrophe. It's like Leopold's gone back 150 years later into the Congo, and this time he's not cutting their arms off because of rubber. He's doing it because of cobalt. And and so as Americ from Quadia actually said to me months ago, he said this electric car thing is bullshit. And now you listen to this, the cobalt story, and it's, it's, it's so bad. I'm not saying fossil fuels is, is, is the answer. The hydrogen economy, I believe, has got to be the answer. But it's definitely not EVs. You cannot the, – I mean, the, the, human, the human cost is, is, is way extreme. And, and this, the, 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 you should just listen to the first 
20 minutes of Rogan talking to this guy. Siddharth Kara is his name. Uh, number 1914 no, of Joe Rogan's podcast. It was last week, I think, or this week. I don't know. I think it's, it's I mean, I, I have a Fairphone here, which is not cobalt free, but traced at least without, without slaves involved. Okay, but now listen, so, so, so you, you must listen to that because, because he, this guy in his book and on his talk says that people who claim it's slave free cobalt are lying. Because I am pretty sure that these ones are, are the only phone brand in the world that is, is not lying about this because they went there. They bought it straight. They, this is a, as far as you can go, they went to, to get this phone to be, uh, let's say, conflict metal free. And it's, it's fine, but it's a tiny shiver, of course, of the, the phone. And I think brand? it's a fair phone. Fair phone. So it's, a, it's an, Air, an, an Android-based phone, which actually is modular as well. Like I can fix most of it myself if I wanted to. Um, so you can open it up. You, it's yours to, to fix and it should last. And it actually does. It should last... Uh, Quite, quite a long time, but it's, a, it's an enormous issue. At the same time, you see lithium, which is not a, a, a clean one as well, but no cobalt batteries coming up. Like this, this is not a, a non-fixable piece. Of course, the storage in batteries is, a, is an absolute mess. But at the same time, if you look what Nigeria went through or many other places or Canada in terms of fossil fuel, I still don't know what's worse. Like this is, this is I mean, how do we... So there's but no it's place, an energy there's no like place How do we store... Absolutely no place for coal. Uh, uh, There's another, I'm going to email you this, this, there's a very interesting um, guys. They've developed. They're listening to the great simplification. Their first plant. These guys, their first, these guys first plant was in, um, uh, let me just find this quickly. You. No, I, I've listened to the, the Great Simplification, which is very interesting, with Nate Hagens on like the energy intensity we're on as a, as a society at the moment yes. and how, whether we like it or not, we're going to have to drastically reduce that. Like, it, like there's no way we can, we can stay on this energy diet because it's been a short bleep in dude, time where we just dude. had free fossil fuels. And it's going to go like to 10, 20% of what we have now. And that's going to be very painful. Well, and ag is going to be a big part of that. It depends, you know, there, 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 there's, there's a school of thought that's like fossil fuels are actually pouring out of the ground, depending on where you, where you find them. There's scientists who've shown that the, these things are, 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 are reproducing. It's not crushed beds of, it's not the abiotic view, right? So, so that's, that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that this thing I've, ju- I've just emailed you when you get an opportunity have a look at what these guys have developed. They've done their first plant in Colorado where they take whatever material it is, put it through what they call a mitochondria and their, and their oil comes out the other side. So, so the plastics are, you know, 25% of the oil that comes out the ground becomes plastic. Why, why can't that be reverse engineered back to oil? Yeah. What, what is stopping hydrogen engines? I saw a friend of mine two weeks ago, he's buying trucks, hydrogen trucks, uh, he's going to use in Namibia. And then, and then, and then, of course, here's another question which no one's been able to answer for me. They have been in, this, in the world's oceans for probably 50 years, nuclear-powered submarines, nuclear-powered warships. Why can't that engine that's powering that nuclear submarine 
be put next to my farm and power my farm or my town? Why, why can't I do that? Why do I have to fucking mine coal or burn gas? Yeah, I think there are some people working on like this. I heard a podcast somewhere on, on floatable. I mean, putting these kind of smaller scale, once we've done for a long time on a barge, which fixes a lot of the issues around permitting and building a huge plant, et cetera, but actually bring them into metropoles where they are needed. There's, there's a lot of interesting things, I think, around nuclear. Um, we're going to see a lot of development there because we have to. But it's also it, it's so sensitive to so many people because yeah we're we're scared of that kind of power probably and potentially we should, but I think the energy like how do we coming back to to the chemical fertilizer piece like how do we get as much fossil fuel out of ag as soon as possible and use the the big nuclear power plant up in the sky yes. as much as possible <laughs> is, is a massive underlying and and like how do we but how do we still fertilize and how do we still um, animals dude do that animals animals yeah no, and so let me let me ask you a question that then we then we're going to get to some other questions but what do you tell people because you must get that question all the time either from chefs that uh, no longer work with you but used to or others that okay what about this whole plant-based movement what do you tell people that said we just need to get rid of all the animals i'm asking because we get a question a lot no, and i'm always oh, like Totally understand. There's a complex answer to it, but what's 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 your go-to yeah, so answer? I had, a, I had a farm tour this morning, for example, and um, the the uh, one of the couples that was on a um, one of the couples that was on this tour was vegan, although she's now pregnant and has is started to eat meat. Um, the plant-based thing. So, so here's the story of the plant-based thing. The, 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 I, I like to talk about the good, the bad, and the tragedy of the vegan movement. The good of the vegan movement is that they're shining a bright light onto caged animal agriculture. The bad, the first bad, is that there are more animals in cages than when the vegan movement started. So they haven't done the job. The second bad is the ecological impact of veganism. And what was something you and I spoke about two minutes ago was methane emissions from fertilizer. So the fertilizer emissions in the vegan world without animals are way higher than they would be today. Okay. Then the third thing that's bad about the vegan movement is what is, is this concept I refer to as body count. How many beings does a vegan kill compared to what I kill? So if I kill a grass-fed beef cow, she has had calves, so she's given life. Her manure and her urine has fertilized the soils. Billions of bacteria and fungi are growing as a result of her, because I've been rotationally grazed. I'm not talking about a cage system here. She feeds, I don't know how many people you can feed off one cow. That, now, let's now look at, at a vegan staple like wheat or soya, you know. The, the, the animals, the first time they kill those animals, is when they plow those soils up pre-planting. Remember, when you put a plow in the soil, Kun, you kill an underground city. There are more microorganisms in a handful of healthy soil than the human beings on Earth. An earthworm takes 18 months to build its network underground. That's all gone. Then they spray them with all the poisons. Then the plants grow. They spray again. Then they harvest now the animals that survive, the, the animals that are that, that get sucked up in the combines, whether it's snakes or rats or, or other rodents, 
insects, they're all killed. And then those that survive the harvest die of starvation because their food source is taken away. So, so, so the, 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 yes, of course, I mean, I do know actually quite a few friends who are pure carnivore. They only eat beef and they're in very good health. I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't do it, but I can see a diet that does very little harm. Veganism does huge harm to a diet. And then the tragedy. Is that the bad or the tragedy? Uh, no, yeah. no, that's the bad. What's the tragedy? The tragedy yeah. is that the vegan movement has been hijacked by big food. And that's where the mm. great evil comes in with a plant-based diet is, is the world's being told, especially the rich world, because Kun, this is very much a first world problem. The, the, the poor African people don't give a toss for the plant-based thing. They don't care for it. But it's the newsmakers, it's the media, <clears throat> it's the rich white world or, or the high middle-class world who, who, who talk about the plant-based movement. It doesn't solve any ecological problems. The, the, why does big food love it? Big food loves it for a couple of reasons. The one is you, feel, you, think, you think you're doing the right thing by going plant-based. It's all virtue signaling. The second thing is the products that come out of that are highly processed and therefore highly shelf stable. And that is what big food wants. It wants products that are going to sit on the supermarket shelf for months. Because I supply national retail. I supply these big national supermarkets. Food wastage. Wastage is a massive problem. But now you produce something that people think is good, that they think is healthy, and, and, and it's shelf-stable for a long time. And then, Kun, the last thing is, show me a long-term healthy vegan. Uh, actually, we had somebody on the show saying that the, his ideal customers, it's a, a sheep farmer in the, in the UK, are ex-vegans because they want to do the ethical right thing. They struggle with health in many cases. And, and so when they buy animal protein, they will sort out, they will, they will search for the best thing possible because of the environmental outcome. And, but is there, would you say there's a way possible to grow, like to separate, let's say the, the impact of the animal, which is by all means, extremely positive and the eating, like, is that a, um, an ethical discussion we need to have on the eating side once we establish, and I think we, we, we settled that claim that animals, livestock in general, when done well, have an extremely, can have an extremely positive, kind of an extremely negative and an extremely positive impact on on ecosystems is it then by definition we should also eat them or if you do really well with your pulses your lentils your your um, your others other proteins etc um would that be would that be fine to go or are you saying look it's healthier it's actually if more efficient like you said like in terms of killing in terms of um turning sunlight into in, in into food to to then also eat them or is that something that just comes together and we shouldn't bother to ask those no, two separate listen, questions? Could, you ask the most fantastic questions. Um, uh, my, my own view is that if you have animals to regenerate, but you don't want to eat them, you know, sure you can do it. <laughs> but the animal is going to die at some stage. Okay. You, you don't want it to suffer in old age and its effectiveness wears down so what are you going to do with that animal it's great in compost you know our our chickens that die the laying hens that die we put them in our compost heaps and we got fantastic compost animals in compost are amazing um so you could compost all the animals and then put that manure out uh, or compost out on the land 
Uh, no problem. I My own view is that we need animal protein in our diet um, and, and animals can be a positive. And I've got no problem. Look, my own view is if you are not prepared to kill an animal, you must never eat meat. But I'm no problem killing animals. So I'm very happy eating the meat. Um, and what was the reaction of the, the, the vegan couple that came on the tour? Well, she, she's, she's not eating meat because she is, mm -hmm. is, is pregnant and she, her body told her to, to, she's got to crave deeper nutrition. Um, but they are ethically, as you say, they're sheep farmer in the UK. These are people who care deeply and it's a wonderful thing. And, and I, I, it's tragic that that well-meaning initiative has been hijacked by big corporates. And, and, and remember, big food is a beautiful thing for big corporates because it's highly processed, highly mechanized, uh, um, huge control. Um, it's, it, 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 it gets away from the small-scale farmer. It's the opposite of, of, of balance and, and localizing things. I don't know if you've read uh, Schumacher's book, Small is Beautiful. Mm-hmm. I know it's the absolute opposite of, of, of all of that. So switching to another big industry, the finance side, what would you tell, obviously without giving investment advice, but what would you tell investors that want to have an impact both financially, ecologically, and socially, like a net positive impact? What would you tell them currently in this, this crazy world we're in where to, to start digging a bit deeper, where to look, where, where are the interesting opportunities according to you, again, without giving investment advice, but where should yeah. they look? Where should they start? I mean, I think the first decision to make is which continent you, you want to you you get involved in. You know, where's the greatest potential? Uh, I mean, there's a case to be made that the greatest potential is in England because English soils have been destroyed more, almost more than anybody else's soils, right? Then there's an argument to go, no, 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 it must be Africa because Africa is where the poorest people are and Or it could be India. I mean, I, so the first thing is your appetite about where, where, where to go. The, the second thing, obviously, I think it's got, it's got a lot of the, the regulatory stuff. And this is what, you know, we were talking earlier about some Dutch friends of yours. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention them, but I'm not going to mention them for now. But, but these are Dutch farmers who are looking at doing a regenerative thing. Uh, but they are concerned about the regulations around animals. Uh, uh, which, which is, which is just again shows you how the system is against the regenerative movement. It's not the cow; it's the how. And 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 so I think that's another thing to bear in mind is is how easy is it to work with animals in that area? And I would be inclined to go to a country where there isn't the bureaucracy in the way. And, yeah, um, but then you might have a government that takes away your land. Well, the, so, yeah. you see, there's, the, I mean, this is the, the thing. I mean, there's the, 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 <laughs> yeah, in South, yeah. we've talked about it in South Africa, there's a risk of the government taking away your land. But if you're teaming up with local people, black people yeah, in this yeah. case, you 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 much like less likely the government's going to take the land. Uh, yeah, so there. I do the think risk. I do think that that as 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 to be in agriculture, it would be good to get involved with a farm that is both exporting and producing for local. Okay. Because the, the, the export, are, are we okay on time? We're okay. perfectly fine because, on time. Because, yeah. because, I mean, are you okay? The, the, no, I'm fine. <laughs> because what the export thing does is provides a cushion 
for for domestic swings. So, you know, there's this incredible pecan nut farm, for example, that I'm starting to work with. These guys, you know, the, the industry, the fruit and nuts, the, 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 the trend is to plant everything closer and closer and closer and closer together because you're going to increase the yield per hectare, right? This guy's gone. And you can run the machines gone, over it. Exactly. He's gone exactly the opposite way. He's gone, fuck that. I'm going 12 meters by 12 meters. I'm planting these insane pastures in between. And his cattle are grazing there, rotational grazing. The result is he's going to make as much money off beef as he is off pecan nuts per hectare. And then, he, and then I'm adding the third income stream for him, which is carbon. And I'm trying to persuade him to add a fourth income stream, which is the seeds of the cover crops. Which is a very so, interesting so, so, but uh, this is how I'm answering your question about where to invest. I'd be investing in, in places where it's possible to do stacking like that. Mm -hmm. Multiple income streams, the same piece of land. It would be great if there was already an established brand. But, you know, it, it, it all depends on the impact that the investor wants to have. Now, let's say the investor wants to impact on the ground level. Then you've got to go and find a community that's already sort of community established and see how you can work with them. You go, then, you, then you go to India and you work with Manoj Kumar, who's planted something like 10 million trees, fruit and nut trees into these valleys in India. I think that someone's saying they do, it's only organic and biodynamic. 60% of the vegetables sold in Hyderabad come from their farms, small scale, smallholder farms. You know, I mean, Manoj Kumar's model is unbelievable. But one of the things that Manoj does is he sells, I think it's the most expensive coffee in the world. It's called Araku coffee. And, and, and Manoj says, he says, rich people want to buy things packaged like iPhones. So I'm going to package my coffee like an iPhone. And he's right. I mean, and, and so what would you do if you would do, if you would have had, I mean, you'd know this question's coming, but the billion dollar and a billion dollar investment fund. So if you'd ask um, me, or if you'd ask me this, if you'd you ask me about the billion dollars a week ago, I'd give you a very different answer to what I'm going to give you now. I the, the answer, Okay. So the answer now is I'd spend the billion dollars in the Congo, in Katanga, which is the province where the cobalt is. I would, I would do, do, I would, of the billion dollars, you can put aside $20 million to do a regenerative agriculture project there that will produce insane beef. You're going to have to invest in, in, in the electricity infrastructure for the cold rooms and all that kind of stuff. But, but you can earn a carbon income and a beef income from, 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 from that area. And the rest I would put into buying up land, mining it with machines, refining the cobalt there and actually producing the batteries there at all the value in the Congo for the people of the Congo. Because, because, so it would actually because be a, I mean, Kun, it would be really interesting for you to listen to, to what this guy has to say um, on the cobalt thing. It, 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 it's a horror that is, is almost beyond comprehension. And, and there's videos that he, he, he snuck, sneaks in of thousands and thousands of people digging with their hands with basic tools, uh, uh, people covered in filth. It, it's indescribable. And so that's what I would do today with a billion dollars. Um, and last week? Last week, I would, I would split the billion th three ways. I would spend, and it would be solely focused on regenerative agriculture projects, combining livestock with 
um, I, I love the idea of the nut trees because I think the mega trend is towards healthier, nutrient-dense food. And I think nuts offer that protection. So I'd be doing that in Uruguay, in South Africa, and in England. And you'll be buying land, vertically integrating, you'll be leasing, what would you, building Dude, brands and then partnering with farmers? Absolutely building brands, partnering with farmers, maybe buying a little bit of land. I'd rather invest in, in the brand and in, 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 in getting the guys earning money for carbon, uh, those kind of layered services. Um, and, and, and the reason I would go to Uruguay, I've not been to Uruguay myself, but I've done a bit of research into Uruguay. The climate is very similar to here, which is a climate I know well. The population is highly educated. It's the most literate population in South America. Their tax laws, their laws seem to be very progressive. Um, uh, um, South Africa is just because I know South Africa. And I think that that the the, the economic, put it, put, it, put it this way, a dollar goes a lot further in Africa than it does go anywhere else. Because yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of need for it. Um, I, I, it might not actually be South Africa. It might be another African country because the political situation in South Africa is very unstable. Um, and if you could change one thing overnight and you had a magic wand to do that, what, what would that one thing be? I would, I would, oh, it's very simple. I would invent a handheld machine that you could walk into any supermarket anywhere or any market anywhere and you just shine this machine on your product and it'll tell you exactly what the nutrient density is of it, uh, what pesticides are in it, genuinely measure the, the, quality, the quality of it. And even you can even, even have a, a GDV, it can also be a, a part GDV camera. You know what GDV is? Gas discharge visualization. Okay. So okay. you're actually yeah. measuring the energy of that thing. Like if we put a GDV camera on me and a GDV camera on you, it's going to pick up what radiation is coming out of us. You can call it energy, you can call it radiation, give it whatever name you want. But that's what I would do. So, so, so what would then happen Kun, is you'd walk into your supermarket. There'd be two or three different types of apples. You hold the machine. You choose, you choose the most nutrient dense one. It would be the one coming from the regenerative agriculture world. No question. And so, and so that will then force a revolution in a heartbeat. So if you're, I mean, I completely with you with, with the nutrient density connection to soil. I mean, we're, we're doing a full series and, and are actually doing another one. Uh, we'll do two series this year uh, focused on that. If that's the, the biggest lever, why are you focusing on carbon? Because those devices will come and, and it's actually, it's mostly a discussion now on, on what is nutrient density and how do we benchmark because we can measure things in the field, but then it doesn't tell anything unless you, you know what apples should look like. Like you need, you need the, the background literally sure. to understand if this is good or sure. bad. So why carbon and not go all in on nutrient density? Well, the, the, the one is I don't have, I don't have the fun to, I don't have the money to go into nutrient density. The second thing is that, that the, the farms that build in carbon will have the highest nutrient density products. So when that development happens, Comes. which I believe will happen, although Zach Bush said to me, and, I, and I, I mean, he's an incredibly smart, knowledgeable guy. I saw him in November. He said he doesn't believe that the, that the, because I basically said, 
what I envisage is that the laboratory comes to the shop. And he says he thinks technically it's too much of a challenge to have those handheld devices. Although I know people like Jill, Jill Clapperton are working on Clapperton. it. Clapperton. Um, th- there's... It might be in the in-between. It might be somewhere in the distribution. Like at the moment, big distribution has no idea of what they're buying in terms of quality. I mean, they buy the, the nice ones with your face printed on it because you, you tell them the story, but it's not that they can, they have a handheld device to scan Correct. your minced meat or whatever yeah. and say, okay, this is actually... Correct. Um, so I, it might be an in-between step just as, I don't know, mainframes first came to universities and, and big companies before they landed on all of our desks. So it might be a question of time and and maybe Zach Bush goes down. I mean, we had him on the podcast. He's, he's a friend of the show, but... Maybe go down at the person that I think it was Intel or IBM said the world only needs so many mainframes, like 20 or so. And then it turned out to be slightly different, but who cares if it gets the revolution going? Yeah. Like that's, there's no, um, and, and there might be brands. I see some beef brands now, it's early, but using some nutrient density study, the beef study of the Bionutrient Food Association in their marketing, which I think is a bit early mm. um, to claim a lot of things, but it is um, also there, it's going to be the Wild West for sure. Um, but it's uh, it's going to be very interesting to follow that connection, the health connection at the end. And Kun, if you had a billion dollars, what would you do with it? I should prepare for this question. I, I think I would probably a big chunk into, like what you said, uh, the brand and the, the marketing and the storytelling piece, like vertically integrated brands. I would definitely want some exposure to land. Um in ways that are obviously not extractive, speculative. So somehow um, figuring out ways to put it to work for a long time or forever and, and without the land grabbing that you often get when you uh, come in with so, so much money in, in, in basically all communities, honestly, and trying to not overpay for, for land prices that in many places are, are completely disconnected from the carrying capacity. But some exposure to, to that and vertically integrated brands and brands that then also source from others. Um, and then maybe like I would probably do 80, 85% of that. And then a 15 to 20 in, let's say, enabling technologies or the more speculative, not speculative in terms of, but speculative in terms of impact, like it most likely fails, but we need it. And one of those could change, I wouldn't say change everything because there are no silver bullets, but could really speed up compost um, applications or really speed up satellite like remote sensing and really understand uh, what we should plant where and where and how in, in a landscape or like some of the more, the moonshots, let's say, mm. and hope that a few of those uh, make it and, and help the other uh, 80% of the portfolio to, to really, really speed up. Um, or if I'd say, okay, we just run out of time so quickly, let's put everything in the moonshots and, and um, uh, let's let's make it very speculative. I, I keep switching back and forth depending of if I'm in the optimist state or if I'm in, okay, we're really running out of soil and time and let's just go as speculative as possible. Speculative again, in terms of impact, not in terms of how much, financial results. It depends how much sleep your children have let you have. Yeah, no, quite a bit actually. So it's, uh, uh, but also depends where you are. So I would, I would split it in that way probably. And, but it depends. Like I talked to like this conversation, I think, Ah, shit, we really have to push the carbon side. And, and it also shifts because we get to talk to so many people and, and all of it, many of it, I mean, we do have a framework, but many of it is very, very important. Like it's not a one, it's not, I wouldn't put it all in biochar, yes. let's say. There's no silver bullet here Correct. because it's just, it's so context specific. Let's acknowledge that. We are making small investments personally, which is very interesting. 
Um, and and yeah, it's it's a it's a mix to to see um, to see how this this can speed up. I think that's that's where we're at. Like the transition is happening. Everyday farmers are getting on the bandwagon, etc. Et but now it's the question of okay, how we how we enable it to go faster, and that could, that's through brands, it's through carbon, it's through tech. And so we probably try to get exposure to to all of that and speed it up. But but you notice you you didn't mention retail there. You don't. I, I, I'm of the view that retail has a massive role to play in this. The current retail, I don't know enough of it. I think there. I mean, we've been waiting for the supermarkets to get disrupted for a long time, and and I don't. I don't know. I don't know enough about the the margins, the space. I've seen new supermarket concepts fail constantly. But I also see like some like Thrive Market and some others seemingly successful, but farm dropped miserably fail. Um, so I, I think anything that can get better margins to farmers is, is great. But I just don't know enough about the space to, to really understand if it's a worthwhile place to put money in. Would you? No, I would be what I'm saying is I would encourage retail to get involved and see the benefits of supporting the regenerative agriculture community. Especially yeah, but also with they benefit three, from this shelf, especially with this, the this shelf stable ones. They do benefit from the shelf like stable ones. So, so again, like again, the fresh please, can the I fresh tell you, that's so where we come to that yeah. handheld meter. The first yeah. retailer mm-hmm. that supports a handheld meter. Of course. He, he, the, the, it, that it, supplies it in the store that you just put, you just need one or two in the exactly. store to just scan stuff. Exactly. Like you don't need everybody has need It doesn't even have to be handheld. It could just be but one of those that you scan the price. You no, know, I'm excited by that idea. But if I was a retailer, it will expose if I was a retailer, so much shit. Would yeah. I take the risk on something like that? Because what's going to happen is let's just say it's my salami. Okay. I'm just using mine as an example. I yeah. know that my salami, because it's pigs that have lived outdoors, the, the main pig foods, glyphosate free, no nitrites, nitrates, phosphates, they're cured with vitamin D from the outdoor pigs. I mean, I just know that my product will be in another league to the other one. Do they want to take the risk of someone walking into the shop going, hey man, you're selling something that gets, I don't know, 87 out of 100 marks, and you're selling something that gets 57 out of 100 marks. Why are you selling shit? So, uh, so that would, I mean, I know Whole Foods. Whole Foods told Dan Kittridge um, of the Biointernet Food Association yeah. as they're still developing that meter, like give us two years, like give tell us when it's gonna because we need to get our suppliers, and that's probably the the higher end one anyway. Yes. Like we need to get our suppliers up to speed because this is gonna show a lot of amazing products like yourself and like others, and a lot of not so amazing products on the other side. So it's gonna be an enormous. Pandora box we're going to open, which is it's bound to happen. But, so so the, way, the way to play it, and these, and at the, at the, I can tell you now, at the heart, these retailers are so competitive. So once you have that handheld meter, it's a function of saying to him, listen, dude, you're going to have something which nobody else has. One. Two, you say to your, supply, your, your people who walk in the shop, we're on a journey, guys. We're on a journey. This is the start of the journey. But we're helping you. We're measuring nutrient density for you. And and from fifty six, we go to sixty five exactly. next year. And, we're gonna and slowly but surely, you. Move. But I promise you, you'll get a jump on the retailers, on the other guys, and they'll be like, "Oh my gosh!" Yeah. And do you see those differences? Like, are you measuring yourself? Like, what? Look, the only thing I've ever done. You, the only apart thing from the I, taste, the, of course. But mm, how do you do? The, the only thing I've ever done, and. Um, 
my, one of my sons actually wants me to do it. And I'm gonna, I'm, I'll do it next week probably. Uh, but one of the things I have done is I've taken our eggs and I've done the amino acid profiling on our eggs. Because that's ultimately why you want to buy eggs is because the amino acids is the protein, right? Of the building blocks of the protein. And, 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 and they, I tested three types of eggs. I tested our eggs. I tested caged eggs. So South Africa is about 96% caged. And I tested what they sell as free range eggs, which is in South Africa consumer fraud. Just plain. These chickens aren't free to range. They, it's just nonsense. It's, it's, it's abuse of the English language and, and of consumers' trust. So the amino acids of the caged egg and the free-range egg were identical, and ours is just in another league. You would expect that. But yeah. what, I wouldn't, what I was not expecting originally, but now I've learned more about the free-range egg industry, was that it and the cage would be the same. And the irony, the great irony, is that the caged hens are actually less stressed than the free-range eggs because the free-range hens are standing on their own excrement the whole time. They're standing in their own shit. The, the caged birds are layers upon layers of cages, but that stuff is clean. It's much more hygienic. So the salmonella counts are much higher. The disease pressure is much higher for the free-range bird, which is why her egg is the same nutritional value as a caged egg. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it's really interesting how this is going to unfold on, on the quality piece because that's what it is at the end. It's the and and how and do you share my yeah, enthusiasm? Where, which, do you share my enthusiasm for the absolutely? Quality? No, we're doing two we're doing two series just on that, and and it seems to be the biggest lever we have. I mean, people care about climate, people care about water biodiversity. We care about let's say soil and all of that. But at the end of the day, it seems logically. I mean, if you're you're running uh, your life you care about health you care about health of your children and and the research is abundantly clear that that's not going well at all and and it seems like food and then the way we grow and that step is often of course i mean that's the same journey zach was on um like okay i can suggest broccoli to my and kale to my patients but half of them are getting worse yes um so something is happening to the broccoli and kale i think that step is still missing with many many do you say oh you need more fibers oh you need more this mm, or, oh you need mm, more that mm, or mm. oh if you only and we get this in this month yep. of course everybody's having uh let's this year we do blah 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 but unless we ask the question how that was grown um yeah we're not really getting anywhere we're getting very mixed results so i think that that realization still has to come with many but it's also the biggest opportunity we have. And I want to be conscious of your time. We went a bit over yeah, of cool, what really. we, we scheduled. So I want to wrap it up as well. I don't think it's the last time we, we talk, at least I hope so. Um, but if you had to pick one place where you're a contrarian, so I like to ask the question that John Kempf always asks in, 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 let's say, traditional ag, what do you believe to be true about regen ag that others don't? I mean, we covered a few, but what would be the one you, you would pick now on the top of your head? Yo, that's a, I've, I've never been asked that question. So let me understand it. What you're saying is that regenerative Let's agriculture... Let's say we put you in a room with regen ag. Yes. Like you're traveling the, the country, you're visiting all these farmers. Correct. Where do you think fundamentally different than they do? That I think we can learn something from conventional agriculture. Okay. And why and do you say I that? what I mean by that is we don't... I don't share the same philosophy or philosophical underpinning, but what I've learned a lot from is their systems and their protocols and, 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 and being a bit more professional because a lot of people come to the organic regenerative world emotionally. 
and, and, and permaculture, for example, is a great example of this. And a lot of that is farming, Alan York said it best, it's organic by neglect. I think it's a good place to leave it and to, to pick it up another time. I want to thank you so much, Man, Angus, for your time, been mine. for sharing. I love talking to you, dude. You've got such a great mind and, and asking great questions. And, you know, hopefully we can talk again. Absolutely. Come on. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.